Hello, and welcome to The Main Question, a podcast series from the University of Maine. I'm your host, Ron Lisnett. We're excited to start Season 2 and dive into some intriguing topics and issues that UMaine researchers and scholars are exploring. In this first episode of Season 2, we're going to try and at least begin to make sense of the state of journalism and the news business, and how we as a society gather and consume information. Fake news, Twitter bots, artificial intelligence, Russian trolls, TikTok, confirmation bias, these are just a few of the factors and trends that are fundamentally changing the way we take in news. It's a pretty far cry from the days when a Walter Cronkite was America's most trusted news source and people tuned in for a half hour in front of the television to be informed of the day's happenings. It's virtually impossible to stay on top of and make sense of all the trends and changes. But Mike Sokolow, an associate professor of communications and journalism, is as informed a source on all of this as just about anybody. A former network producer, he not only researches these topics, he's also written many articles and op-ed pieces about media trends. Beyond that, he's the son of one of the pioneers of network news, Sandy Sokolow, who produced the CBS Evening News with Walter Cronkite. We talked to Mike about the state of journalism, fighting over what the basic facts of a story are, and how to make sense of the rapidly evolving state of the news business in the 21st century. Thanks for taking the time to talk to us, first of all. Appreciate it. Sure. Glad to be here. Someone once said, may you live in interesting times. And for someone like yourself that's uh, been uh, in and around the news business, communications, journalism, your whole life, basically, how would you describe it big picture, what what it looks like today? Well, uh, that's a really complicated question because there's several layers. But I would just say, in general, the biggest and most important transition that the news media is going through right now is the loss of advertising as the commercial basis for news gathering and journalism. And for both newspapers, websites, uh, even television stations, uh, this is really going to change the future of news delivery and how it affects people and how they're informed. How do you consume news yourself? I, I know you're active on Twitter. I've, I've looked at, at your feed and you got a lot of interesting stuff going on there. But as a consumer yourself, how do you, uh, what channels do you use? What, how do you consume it? Well, I check uh, almost entirely through the web now. I mean, I, I barely, the radio in the car. And by the way, you know, radio remains the number one medium by usage percentage in the United States. If you look at the Pew Research numbers, 91% of Americans tune in a terrestrial, not even satellite, tune in a terrestrial radio station in a given week. That's more than web penetration. It's more than the internet. It's more than anything else, which is astounding because it's 100 years old. So, you know, I listen to the radio in the car or at home. Uh, 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 radio's still big for me. But my number one thing is the web uh, through, through the mobile device or through the computer. And um, really, Twitter is like a wire service. That's why I like it so much. I end up posting more than I want to, but <laughs> more than I should. But um, it really is. When I was a journalist, I used to love being ahead of the rest of the population and knowing, having access to the wire services and knowing every second, you know, 10 minutes back in the early 90s, at CNN, it would be 10 or 15 minutes before the rest of the world found out a big story. And that really is, is energizing. Well, Twitter is there now. There's, there's no break between when a story happens and when you read about it. And so, and so that's why I like Twitter. Let's circle back to the advertising thing. The, that lack of a revenue stream for the traditional networks or any, anybody involved in this business, how does that, how does that percolate out? What, is that, what are the ramifications of that? Well, there are a lot of ramifications. The first and most important one is if 
things like the New York Times move to a subscriber base. And if the paywalls go up stronger, then the journalism has to accommodate the subscriber base's expectations more. So it has to become tailored to that more. It has to become more partisan. It, it can't be more. You can't offer bad news that will make people want to cancel subscriptions. Whereas advertising used to, in the old days, provide enough of a basis that people, that the mass audience could have people disagreeing in it. So that's one really important way is we're moving more into silos, whether it's through social media or through the newspapers and television stations we consume. Uh, uh, that's the most important way that the loss of advertising is going to change. But, and that sort of mirrors uh, society at large, doesn't it? We're all retreating to our left, right. I mean, the middle is, is shrinking and, uh, you know, confirmation bias. Let's talk about that. Is that um, a phenomenon that is, is growing as well? It's growing, but we it, it always existed. Like if you look back, even in the when there were only three channels on your TV set, uh, people would tune in and not be influenced by uh, Walter Cronkite or Peter Jennings or whoever, uh, but they would tune in. So the ratings wouldn't reflect that people were still in their own silos. But when they went out to vote, Nixon won 49. You know, if the media is so liberal, how did Nixon win 49 states in 1972? Especially when Watergate was already on the front page of the New York Times. And you, know, you could argue that all that Watergate reporting, which really showed, you know, criminal malfeasance for which he later resigned, a, a significant amount of it was known by the election of 1972, and Nixon won 49 states. So the power of the media and this question of the silos and how it affects us, I think, is a little more, it, it has always been overestimated in that way. Now, confirmation bias, we should probably define what that is. What, what is that? Confirmation bias is that we actually search out evidence and facts to confirm what we already believe rather than to inform ourselves. And it's natural and it happens to all of us. And it, it does not, confirmation bias crosses everything, it crosses every demographic. Uh, women, men, educated, uneducated, uh, we all do this. We seek out the facts that support what we already believe rather than seeking out facts to inform ourselves. Now, in past times, the gatekeepers of news were, uh, you know, network news producers, executives, uh, uh, editors of newspapers. Who are the gatekeepers now? Is it still the same bunch or is that, is that pie grown? That's a really interesting question and I'm not sure. Uh, I will say that the politicians, the people who run political campaigns, have more power over the media than they did. Now, I, that doesn't necessarily translate into votes because they may be ineffective. But the media doesn't have the power to stand up to them in that way. And that, that sort of gatekeeping function that used to work in that way doesn't work that way anymore. The other thing is social media influencers and people with big audiences. Um, but I'm not sure... They're even even the best of the best at this uh, know what they do. I was writing a book. I'm writing a book review about talk radio uh, right now, and um, one of the more fascinating things is Rush Limbaugh in the 80s and 90s introduced Snapple, you know, the juice product, to the entire country and made it huge. And Coca-Cola sold it for hundreds of millions of dollars. And they have evidence that really it was advertising on his show. I don't know if today's world, and speaking of gatekeeping, I mean, that kind of influence, that huge influence over people, whether it's a consumer product, a political campaign, or news and information. I'm not sure there's anybody like that today who can introduce a product on that scale or can get people to vote on that scale in the same way there used to be. How did this uh, phenomenon of calling out fake news come about? Fake news, first thing you have to know is fake news always existed. Sure. Uh, so, so especially in America. I wrote a piece for The Conversation about this. I mean, look at P.T. Barnum and look at uh, Mark Twain and look at uh, uh, 
the history of fake news in America goes back to the origins of the of the Daily Newspaper. The New York Sun did a thing called about about animals on the moon that it, eventually that, scientists disproved, but uh, they presented it as real news. So the first thing is it's been around forever, and the calling out of it that's new it isn't even that new. If you think about Trump just gave a label to something that Spiro Agnew did in the 70s, right? And that George Bush did. People forget. I'm not talking about George Bush in the 80s, 90s. The recent George Bush, the son, um, he campaigned very hard against CBS News and the whole memo gate thing. And that was a version of fake news. The reason we all lump onto this term fake news now is because the president throws it around constantly. But this criticism, whether it's based in fact or not, of journalism, you know, the killing and attacking of the messenger... It's been a staple of American politics for 200 years. So in this era of fake news accusations, we have fake Facebook pages, Twitter bots, uh, robots sort of answering each other and filling in comments. Uh, uh, can, can we even trust news sources anymore? I mean, given all this, uh, this stuff that's going on? That's a great question. And that's why media literacy is so important. We have, and, and one thing I'll say here at UMaine, we have excellent um, scholars and students interested in the grad level in media literacy. Uh, Faith D'Ambrose, who was the president of the Maine Press Association, um, has a master's from our program in media literacy and, and K through 12. And, uh, and uh, we have students studying now, Judith Rosenbaum. And so I think, I think essentially figuring out how trust works, it's going to trickle down. It's going to start with these academics and scholars who study it. And eventually I'm hoping that there will, it'll, it'll get, you know, students will learn in school how to apply skepticism and understand how to read a newspaper or watch a broadcast. So I, one of your recent retweet, retweets that I thought was interesting was about these Russian entities that are assuming the role of, uh, like, uh, being part of the Black Lives Matter movement, yeah. and uh, they're uh, putting out messages, liking and commenting using robots or artificial intelligence. I don't even know how that works, but it sounds ominous. But um, the larger point of the piece, I think, asked the question, did it really move or change anybody's vote? Are, so are we giving these trends... And these influences too much credit, perhaps? That's a great point. And, and yes, that piece makes that point. We know this is happening. That's the first, there's two separate things. We know that the Russians attacked the election in 2016. We have the data. We have the indictments. We know exactly what they did. We know the, the way they used the, the trolls, the way they used uh, exploited uninten, unintended amplification. We know the way... Um, we, we know. It's, it's established, right? right? We know that they're doing this for 2020. Uh, Reddit, in particular, just had a post the other day that was fantastic. They actually labeled the Russian bots and showed you. You could go through. There were 60 of them that amplified a piece. A Russian hacker went into the British government, exposed some documents, posted it at Reddit, pretending to be a regular person, regular English person. And Reddit identified what they called coordinated suspect activity. Eventually, it's suspected inauthentic activity. And they told you exactly who the bots were. And uh, Twitter and Facebook can do this. They know where it is. They know where the ISP is. I wish they'd be as transparent every time it happened as Reddit is. But they won't. And the reason they won't is, and the reason which gets to the second part, is how many people are persuaded by these bots. Facebook needs to sell advertising. They need to prove that they have persuasive power. So does Twitter in a way that Reddit doesn't, for instance. And so if they were to actually say the reason the reach of this post has gone to X, Y, and Z is coordinated inauthentic activity, their advertisers would say, well, wait a minute. You're charging us X amount of dollars for video rolls. How many of those video rolls are coordinated inauthentic activity? It would expose just what's just <laughs> frankly how 
the, how exploitative these social media um, platforms are commercially. So they actually have an incentive not to tell us how it's happening. But the second part of the question, which is really important, is how many people are persuaded? The Russians know they don't have to persuade. They don't have to tell somebody who hates the Black Lives Matter movement to start liking it. All they need to do is energize and motivate people who are on the fence, but who lean in that direction. So in other words, these, what they're doing is the equivalent of a very effective get-out-the-vote get campaign. They're telling people your righteous indignation, your anger on social media is, is uh, deserved, and you should act on it. And they're pushing people, encouraging people in that way. But they're not changing anybody's mind. And that's the really important thing to keep in mind. So what happens when we can't even agree climate change or, or pick, pick any topic, when we can't even agree what the facts are? What does that do to the communications and reporting on whatever issue we want to talk about? I'm not sure. I think we're really early in that, early in what's going to eventually happen. But I will say this about climate change. I was in Australia on a Fulbright earlier this year, and they had a president, uh, they had an election for the prime minister party. It's a party election. And very interestingly, even the very right wing parties, as far right as you can get, uh, the prime minister who won a re-election carried a lump of coal into parliament in order to prove that coal isn't going to hurt anybody, right? But here's the weird thing. Climate change is happening in Australia right now. Everybody knows it. Everybody feels it. Tourism at the Great Barrier Reef, agriculture, because the, the fields are all burning down. The fires right now that are covering Sydney and hurting tourism. People aren't going there. So even the right wing admits, yes, climate change is happening. Yes, it's affecting all of us right now. But what they did in the debates and stuff, it all became a question of how much can we afford to spend? And I think that's really interesting, and that's a good sign for where America will get to eventually. I mean, it's a horrible sign. We don't want the climactic dangers that they're facing. But I do think reality has a way of pushing itself into the political arena eventually. If things get bad enough, people will be motivated. Exactly, exactly. Like, um, you know, a very interesting thing to me is that throughout this whole impeachment process that we're watching, Trump's approval and disapproval hasn't moved. And that would seem to argue against the concept of reality. You know, in other words, the, the, the argument that what occurred actually is in reality and was proven um, doesn't matter. But, uh, you know, we're, we're watching it play out in real time. And, you know, no president has ever been reelected with disapproval numbers that he has. So this is why I, I think, uh, you know, we'll have to see. We'll have to see. But I think the question of reality and facts and its relationship to the media and politics is one that we're still too early into. What are some of the new sources or platforms that nobody's heard about that you think are on the rise that, you know, might become the next big thing, perhaps? Well, the big one, and it's very obvious, is TikTok. And, uh, it, but everybody's heard about it because the Chinese government, well, I should, please, let me take that back. Uh, the Chinese company that works with the Chinese government named ByteDance has spent a billion dollars advertising it in 2019. So if you've seen a news article about it and you don't see anything critical about it, a lot of it is because the, the sheer magnitude of advertising of TikTok is astounding. I mean, a billion dollars is more than the combined totals of all the Democratic presidential candidates have spent uh, uh, campaigning so far. It's, 
it's just amazing to me. Now, the reason I don't know, have you seen TikTok ads? So I'm I'm the wrong demographic, I think, right. to know what what TikTok is. So to maybe just explain no, what what I, is it? It's a quick video service. It's like what Vine used to be. It's just little 15 second videos set to music, basically. But the thing I'll just say that you and I are in the wrong demographic. We're too old. Um, but but TikTok is the number one advertiser on Snapchat and YouTube. So we just kind of hear echoes about it from people who are 13 to, to 18, people just about before they get to the university age. Um, and I worry about it. I wrote a big piece about it called The Trouble with TikTok for, for Politico um, because we've never had a social media platform so successfully introduced to every phone on America or every phone of a kid under 25 um, that gives data access to the Chinese government. I mean... Huawei, uh, Huawei, the, the, the argument about using 5G with the Huawei components with China, all the Western governments are in consensus. United States, Canada, Germany, they all ban it because it's essentially turning over the entire data structure of mobile phones to access to the Chinese. It, it, this isn't debatable. It, it exists. Like, it, I mean, I, I guess it is debatable. The Chinese government debates it. But, but um, TikTok is another form of that. We don't know how they'll use it. We don't know what they'll use it for. But one way to think about it is TikTok was pioneered in China as something called Doyin. And in China, they have social scores to be able to fly on airplanes, enroll your kid at school, whatever. This is established. You know, it sounds incredible, but will China eventually use your TikTok as a backdoor to give you a social score for when five years from now you want to go on a visa to study abroad in China. It's uh, it, We don't know. We don't know. But it's something that right now, that's happening right now, this year, 2019, that's the most important question in social media. Your father was a producer at CBS News and worked with Walter Cronkite, 60s and 70s. He ruled the airwaves back then. Talk about the memories. Uh, and what, what I know he's not with us anymore, but what would he think about what's happening today? Well, I know... His argument about what's happening today, because he kept saying it, which is very interesting. He always used to say that the journalism that's available today is as good or better than anything that's ever existed in human history. That's not the problem. The problem is nobody can find it. (laughs) The problem is it's drowned out by so much crap. And so in other words, he would argue that back in the days that he produced a newscast, they did a very good job, but they didn't have nearly the access to information that the people have today. Uh, and and having people grow up in a society with this access to information and being able to organize it and synthesize it means that there is really top-level, fantastic journalism being done. Investigative journalism, too, like the NSA stuff and all that. Um, but we have a huge problem. It's not nearly as easy to discover. And so that was his argument about, about kind of the present situation. In terms of memories... Um, um, you know, I, I, it's a funny one, but I always I joked with him about this. I remember he he got named uh, bureau chief of CBS News in Washington D.C. in '74, I think it was '74 around then. And um, when we moved down there, and they had just reopened the Washington Monument, uh, it had been done for repairs, and we waited all day in line. And just as we got near the front, uh, he had a beeper, and a beeper in 1974 was really new technology. He got a he got a beeped by the office and told to call to find a telephone and call. So, you know, they don't even have pay phones anymore, do they? <laughs> we right. had to find a, go find a pay phone, get out of line. The, the I still remember the park rangers were very nice. They let us stay right at the front because we had waited so long. And he was just going to go get the phone. And he came back. He was super apologetic. Uh, he said he had to go. And it was the night that Gerald Ford pardoned Nixon and was um, 
this was in the afternoon. It was like three or four. Nobody knew exactly how it would be produced. But he was he ended up being the pool producer of it. You know, back in those days at the White House, only one network would provide a camera, a producer, and everything, and do the actual program, and all all of them would carry it. And it just so happened that he and CBS were on that night to produce the Gerald Ford show, and then there was an after show that he had to produce. Uh, uh, so we did eventually get up to the top of the Washington Monument, but that's a memory I have, also because of the beeper thing being so Star Wars-y new technology. Right. <laughs> Um, now, Walter Cronkite, he was the most trusted man in America for much of his career. W- was that the golden age of news, or are we just nostalgic because that's what we remember growing up? No, no. It, it, the quality of that newscast was astoundingly good for, I mean, <laughs> of course I'm biased, but even the, the quality of the Huntley Brinkley show and the quality of ABC, which was third rated and Frank Reynolds, was far better uh, I think than today's for a whole bunch of reasons. I mean, one being there were so many people working on the show. You know, Walter Cronkite had three or four writers for a 22-minute newscast every day. So every word was gone over and they were editors. And, uh, and you know, you had stuff, you had incredible correspondence, you know, hundreds of them around the world every day fighting for a two-minute, to get two minutes on the air. And so the quality that had to be there for that 24-minute newscast was just astoundingly good. You can look at the old Vanderbilt tapes and see it. It's, the, everything's well-written. Everything's shot really well. Today, it's much more um, fly-by-night. The staffs are much smaller. They don't have the foreign bureaus. They reuse a lot of the video. I mean, one of the things that drives me crazy today, and I don't know if you've noticed this, is local news. Local news in America used to have a big assignment desk and send out the reporters, and the reporters would go all around, and they would do readers and figure out photos. Today, they take a viral video. If I see another local newscast that shows me something that's been on Twitter and Facebook a million times, it drives me crazy. Sorry. It's not local news, right? It's not local By news, definition. but it's, it's such airtime filler. And but, but also what's extremely annoying about it is not only is that it's easy, it's cheap, it lets you fire staff, and it's not informative, is that everybody's seen it. I mean, this, again, may be a product of my age, but the local news at five or six used to have stuff that used to inform you about stuff and get you updated. It really doesn't at the level it used to. So um, anybody now can uh, be an an opinion, uh, offer an opinion, you know, reader comments, the ability for the public to weigh in. Good thing, bad thing on balance? I always think it's a good thing because uh, in one sense, it's revealing. It's very revealing. Like if you look at comment threads under newspaper articles, um, nobody reads the article. You know, everybody reads the headline, the first paragraph, and then decides they need to go down and spout off about, you know. And I, I think back, I think 50 years ago, nobody read the article either. They would just read the headline and then spout off to their friends or their family about why the article was wrong. Um, but it's, it's, it's very revealing about news usage. So I actually think the feedback and engagement is very healthy. We were just talking about the presidential debates, you and I, and um, uh, I think the way to experience a presidential debate today is on Twitter and Facebook. Don't bother with watching on TV. You're just going to get the canned sound bites. There's not, you know, we already know exactly how it's going to go. We know they're not really going to address each other. There may be one or two hits that work with a practiced and rehearsed line, but everything is so rehearsed and predictable. What's not rehearsed and predictable is the way people react to it. And that's why I think Twitter, Facebook, following a debate by seeing fact-checking in real time or, or ideas of the audience is really revealing and, and new and interesting. So you obviously deal with college-age kids. You're teaching news, communications, journalism. 
How does that demographic consume news? Uh, do they consume news? And if so, how? It's interesting. I always, the first day of class, I pass around index cards and they have to tell me, where did you get your news this morning? If you did. Or if you didn't get your news, you have to be honest and say, I didn't. I, you know, I didn't. And um, the one thing I will say is ESPN is huge huge in this demographic. It's much bigger. And I don't know if you know, ESPN's been having some problems. I mean, paying for the rights fees and people cutting cords, but that's older people. The um, college kids who get it as part of their tuition. ESPN is just massive uh, uh, for the males. Uh, for the females, there's things like, uh, uh, have you heard of the skim? And there's sort of hip new young aggregators um, that send to your email inbox, you know, quote unquote, what you need to know today in two sentences per, per sentence. And, um, but yeah, the news consumption tends to be much more what they select rather than what shows up on their doorstep or in their radio. Confirmation bias is, is pretty big then. Yeah, and you know, it's sad because ESPN um, had a much more quality product before the whole stick to sports edit. You know what I mean? It's uh, I watch ESPN now, and if you even watch the argument shows, it's, it's very much... Um, the way they would treat Colin Kaepernick or the way they would treat something. Even in the last five years, you can see they've taken out quite a bit of anything that they think would be incitement or provocative or argumentative um, rather than or informational. Uh, so that's a concern. That's a that's a separate concern. But, yeah, they um, they in the way they select their news versus having to read through it is, is a fascinating thing to see. So uh, as we wrap up and uh just I always ask this at the end uh, of, of any interview we do for this. Um, where are we headed? What, what do you see in five to ten years? What, 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 uh, what might this look like? What does this landscape look like? I don't know. That's where all the money is. <laughs> if, somebody could, if it's TikTok, you know, the Chinese government, if it's – the, the way I, I think about that, and I think about that as a media historian, I think about, okay, so if you went back to 1950 and you said, what's going to get better and worse? In the next five years, you would look at the trends in 1950 and see. So, so uh, McCarthy and red baiting and anti-communism and the blacklist—they had just really started in 48 to 50, and they got really bad in 50 to 54. Uh, they got much worse, but they had started, and you could see it happening. And on the technology side, you know, the integration of television, I Love Lucy, the three-camera shoot, the invention of the rerun. All of those had started. I mean, it was Milton Berle, but the transition really got much bigger. So you look at what's happening today. You look at what's happening right now. In five or ten years, the biggest single trends are going to get bigger. So the Chinese government's pushing of TikTok, I think, is a, is a trend. We're going to see Hollywood, television shows, Netflix. We're going to see all over the commercial media more of a kind of servitude to Egyptian, Saudi, Chinese, uh, any censorship regimes. We're going to see less provocative journalism. We're going to see uh, less alternative journalism. Uh, uh, I'm not saying the debate shows won't end. I'm just saying the way they present stuff will be uh, less kind of designed in this way. We're going to see more interference in our elections. We're going to see more countries besides Russia. Russia made a blueprint, but now they're trying to say Ukraine did it, right? And and we know the Chinese have – the Egyptians who aren't very good at it put a whole bunch of inactive bots in that have been discovered. I don't know if you saw about that. <laughs> countries are doing this. They're all following Russia's plan. So that's going to get bigger and bigger. There's going to be many more trolls and bots, and Facebook and Twitter aren't going to address them adequately because of the commercial question. Um, so those are like the the, the biggest – 
uh, trends I see going forward that are bad. Um, however, the New York Times is making more money than it ever has in digital subscriptions. So, and they are publicizing about what's happening in China. They're they're demonstrating an independent, critical investigative reporting. So the best is going to continue getting better and stronger. Unfortunately, there's going to be a lot of places wiped out. So, for instance, the way private capital is destroying local news around America, that's going to get really bad. There's going to be many more local papers going under, much more local coverage of sports and politics is going to go down. And we know that when a newspaper goes under, local politics has a huge problem. Corruption goes up with no watchdog. So those trends are going to continue as well. Well, interesting times ahead, and we've already had some, but we appreciate you uh, visiting with us. Thanks a lot, Ron. Thanks for joining us. We're excited to explore many more interesting stories in Season 2 of The Main Question. You can find our series in a number of spots, iTunes, Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Spotify. Drop us a line anytime with questions or comments at mainquestion@maine.edu. This is Ron Lesnett. We'll catch you next time on The Main Question.